Welcome to Hispanic Marketing and Public Relations, HispanicMPR.com. This is Elena DelVal, and my guest today is Steve Bergsman, who is author of After the Fall, Opportunities and Strategies for Real Estate Investing in the Coming Decade. Today we will discuss the recovery of the real estate market in the United States. For more than 25 years, Steve has written about finance and real estate, contributing to a wide range of magazines, newspapers, and wire services, including the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal Sunday, Global Finance, Executive Decision, Chief Executive, The Australian, Investment Dealers Digest, Reuters News Service, and Copley News Service. He has been a regular contributor to the Ground Floor Real Estate column in Barron's and has written for the leading real estate industry public Publications such as National Real Estate Investor, Institutional Real Estate Letter, Retail Traffic, Multifamily Trends, Real Estate Portfolio, Shopping Center World, Mortgage Banking, and Urban Land. In addition to After the Fall, published in 2009, he authored several other books, including Maverick Real Estate Investing, The Art of Buying and Selling Properties Like Trump, Zell, Simon, and World's Greatest Land Owners. Maverick Real Estate Financing, The Art of Raising Capital and Owning Properties like Ross, Sanders, and Kerry, and Passport to Exotic Real Estate, Buying U.S. and Foreign Property in Breathtaking, Beautiful, and Faraway Grounds. Steve, welcome. Oh, thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. I think this is a topic that is on almost everyone's minds these days. Even people who are not personally affected are certainly interested in understanding what has happened and what is happening and trying to get a handle on what is coming in the future. Would you share with us a summary, if that's possible, of where we are and how we got here? What is the situation today and how did this happen? Sure. It's hard to believe uh, as we're entering 2010, but we've been in this economic downturn since uh, the summer of 2007 and what happened back in 2007 many of you remember was the first thing to happen was that the subprime markets in the residential sector sort of uh, blew up and uh, what followed quickly in uh, was a credit crisis in other words the uh, the big lenders the banks uh, the investment banks the commercial banks uh, just sort of stopped lending to each other and uh, that that just stopped all sorts of uh, traffic and, and deals and uh, buying and selling of goods. And um, so that and that included mortgages. So people weren't buying homes. So that all happened in 2007. And people thought that, OK, this is a residential real estate problem. But uh whether whether problems start in residential or problems start in commercial, they always tend to slip over to the other sector. And if uh, things go bad in residential, there's usually about a 12-month lag, and then things go bad in commercial. And then, uh, so that's what happened in two, by, by 2008, things started to go uh, bad in the commercial real estate markets. And... Um, we had problems with the, the, the investment banks who, who, who finance commercial real estate 
as they did uh, residential real estate in the form of securitizations. And in 2008, a number of the investment banks blew up. And specifically around September 2008, uh, we lost Lehman. Uh, Earlier in the year, we lost Bayer. Uh, Merrill had to be uh, forced, merged with Bank of America. Fannie and Freddie were taken over by the government. And uh, basically, we were pretty close to the edge economically, the United States, uh, through the latter part of 2008. And then in 2009, things stabilized. And that was, uh, uh, you could see the, the economy didn't get any better, but at least stabilized through 2009, and there was some optimism, which was shown in the stock market. However, what really was going bad in 2009 in terms of real estate was the commercial sector. And when I talk about the commercial sector, I'm talking about uh, office, multifamily, hotels, shopping centers, uh, industrial buildings, things like that. So this market uh, was going down in 2013. 2009 as the residential market was stabilizing. And that brings us here to 2010, and hopefully we're on the verge of opportunity, but we'll see. So I think that that sort of quickly takes us to the point where we are now. Is this, as some people say, part of a normal cycle that real estate goes through every few years where there's a rise and then it kind of slumps down and then goes back up? Or is this something more serious? Uh, the answer that is, to that is yes and no. Um, real estate is a very, very cyclical type investment. And no matter what we've done, how, no matter how much we've modernized the industry over the past 30 years, we haven't been able to take the cycles out of real estate. And generally, um, the cycles were, were up and about 10 years later were down and then were up and about 10 years later were down. And it's usually, you can almost time it every 10 years. But uh, so the last major collapse of the real estate markets were at the end of 1980s into the early 90s. And the country was due for a, another real estate decline just on a cyclical basis in the first part of this decade. However, we had just come through a, a tech uh, blow up at the end of the 80s. And the government, the Fed, I should say, decided to keep interest rates very low to keep the economy throttled. And by keeping the interest rates low, uh, re- reaching some extraordinary low points in, in early in the last decade, and I'm talking about after the year 2000, that uh, the the uh, real estate markets continue to to uh, to pick up speed and, and move along helter skelter, and and essentially this was a time where that we probably should have been entering a down cycle, but we were just amping up the up cycle instead. So it, it was like a, a dam that has water building up behind it. The water keeps building up and building up and building up, and finally the dam leaks and breaks, and water comes out in a huge torment, flooding everything. And that's what happened. We, we, we forestalled the, the cycle and built up all this pressure behind it. So when things finally broke in 2007, we sort of had a cataclysmic uh, decline in real estate. So, yes, it was normal in the sense it's cyclical, but it was uh, the, the, the down cycle has been stronger because we had 
put it off for so many years through low interest rates. Okay, so things have stabilized somewhat in 2009, if I understood what you said correctly. What is the actual state of things in the different sectors, for example, and what can we expect in the future? So maybe we can look a little bit more closely in the individual sectors, such as residential, multifamily, etc., and then take a look at your crystal ball briefly for each one of those. Maybe that will help people uh, get a better idea of what's going on. Is, Is that doable? Sure, sure. So let's start. Let's start with a uh, single-family residential because this is uh, obviously what uh, interests most people. And uh, here we are in the beginning of 2010, and I said a lot of the market stabilized in 2009. Now I have this theory I call the Bergsman theory that once we enter a, a down cycle in real estate, it's, it's essentially a seven-year turnaround. And what, the, what that means uh, is that we have three years of slide and then uh, sort of a, 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 break, a year where we hit bottom and another three years to, to come up, or we go three years down and three years up. So it's a six, seven-year cycle. Uh, and in fact, the residential market started to fold in upon itself in 2006. So the three-year down cycle would have taken us through 2009, and let's say it's just a six-year turnaround. So we still have another three years to uh, come back up. Now, what does that mean? Uh, That means that it will take us three years to get to a point where we have normal housing appreciation. And what people... forget is that normal housing appreciation may have been 1% or 2% a year, not the 10 to 20% a year that we're seeing in those extraordinary times, uh, just going back to 2002, 3, 4, 5. So another three years and we get, well, we will get back to normal appreciation. Now, most, most, uh, many of the housing uh, markets across the country then uh, sort of bear bore out this theory of mine because in 2009 a lot of the housing markets uh, began to stabilize and uh, they, they stopped depreciation of the home stopped so they, they sort of hit bottom in 2009 I, and I live in the Phoenix area one of the hardest hit regions in the country in terms of the housing market and I think in, in most of Phoenix we, we, we've seen a, uh, a bottom and I think you could say that for a lot of the the uh, regions of the country but it's it's i'm not really optimistic that things are going to swing around very quickly it'll take a a long time to to clear out this overhang of properties and then there are um depending on who you talk talk to there may be a second round of of problems we could have another uh a round of uh default because option arms are coming due this year uh, some people say we can have another round of faults in three years because so much of the homes that are being acquired now are being acquired by investors who will dump these homes back on the market in three years. But uh, for the optimist side, I, I say we've, we've hit bottom and uh, it, it could take some time, um, another three years for it to rise. Now, some people that I've spoken to, some of the economists say, the next housing cycle will occur somewhere 
between 2011 and 2015. 2011 is not, is, uh, not so very far from now, right? It's one year from now. But in any case, so give it the three-year cycle, that will put us around 2012, by my estimate, somewhere between 2012 and 2015, we'll start to see closer to what was once normal residential real estate appreciation. And once again, that'll be just 1% to 2% a year, nothing crazy like we've seen in the past. So, uh, and by that time, there probably should be a number of new people flooding, coming into the uh, uh, the housing market, and uh, maybe even builders could get back to normal again. So that's my prediction. Somewhere between 2012 and 2015, we will see this market uh, begin to not only stabilize, but we'll see some appreciation. But I can't say, not every market's the same. So uh, obviously, uh, what happens in Phoenix is different from what happened, what will happen in Portland or what will happen in, uh, or even in South Florida, which has a whole bunch of other problems itself. And I think, Elena, that's where you are, right? Yes, I, it was a perfect segue because I was just going to ask you, here in Florida, we have a situation which I think is uh, slightly different from the rest of the country. One out of every four homes, I understand, is undergoing foreclosure or something similar to that. And there are issues that are not affecting everyone in the same way that affect us here, such as high taxes and very high insurance because of the hurricanes. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I know, of course, there are a lot of folks who live in Florida, but also a lot of people who have second or third homes in Florida, and so many people are concerned about that. Yeah, let me talk about Florida, because Florida is uh, a very, very special case here. And um, frankly, I went to the University of Florida. I'm a Gator, by the way. Okay. And my father lived in Florida for about 30 years, so I know the state very, very well. And um, But I'm not an optimist on Florida. And I say this for a number of reasons. A, I think Florida has reached the tipping point in a number of uh, demographics uh, most extraordinary is in the retirement sector. There was a point where uh, Florida gained perhaps one-fourth of every retiree over the age of 60 who was transient. In other words, they were about to move. So every one, one out of every four uh, retirees who, who was considering moving would go to Florida. I think we're somewhere around now one out of ten. So that percentage uh, of the, that Florida used to take has been reduced, and, and maybe over the next couple of years, that could actually be less than one out of ten. And the reason for that are uh, one of the reasons for that is competitive factor that there are other states such as Arizona where I live now or Texas, uh, but on the East Coast, uh, other states such as Tennessee, North Carolina, Georgia, South Carolina have become very competitive with Florida to attract those retirees. Secondly, um, Florida's had a lot of problems. Uh, in the last decade, there were a, uh, a number of hurricanes and that uh, sort of brought to the surface, you might say, a, a number of underlying problems which had to be handled either through 
increased taxes or increased insurance. So we had uh, increased taxes and, and increased insurance, which made Florida uh, more expensive. And on a competitive level, that has uh, diminished Florida uh, in the eyes of some people who might have considered moving there. So you had the demographics with the retirees. Now you have um, Florida has become a higher uh, or more costly state to move to, whether you're retiring or you're moving there uh, with, with a young family. So that, that has become a big problem. Uh, and what we're seeing that uh, although Florida has still getting a lot of people moving to the state, people who move to the state have become unhappy there and move away. So we're actually getting, uh, even though extraordinary number of people still move to Florida, a larger number of people are moving away. And that's why in 2009, uh, Florida, for the first time in probably 50 or 60 years, uh, had negative uh, negative growth, uh, something nobody would ever expect to see for Florida. Amazing, right? You know, uh, I, I, I never thought I'd see it in my lifetime. <laughs> so, uh, so Florida had negative growth in 2009. So people who uh, moved there decided, you know, I could probably find happiness somewhere else. And then they moved to Hawaii. Who knows where they moved to? Maybe they moved to North Carolina or they moved even to uh, Texas or something. So uh, Florida has some growth issues going forward. Uh, and despite all the, all the extraordinary growth in all the different sort of sectors of the economy in Florida, technology, uh, uh, investment, insurance, things like that, the big growth, uh, the big movers in Florida were still real estate and real estate investing. And uh, those are uh, certainly hurting sectors, and we won't see an improvement in that. As you mentioned, there's so many uh, real estate problems in Florida that um, that that one leg of the economy, which is uh, an extraordinary powerful leg, is gone, at least for, for the long time. So um, I'm not really uh, um, too optimistic in Florida. Now, I, I'm guessing, Elena, you're in South Florida, maybe? Yes, I am in uh, Palm Beach County. Now, there's some, uh, in, in South Florida, there's some interest uh, by foreigners who, who, who like Florida still, who would like to have a piece of the United States, a piece of U.S. real estate, and one of the places they'll they'll look at is uh, the Gold Coast there in South Florida, from from Palm Beach South through Miami. So there will be a uh, an ameliorating factor in in South Florida, but as you know, there's so much there was so much overbuilding in South Florida that uh, there's I don't think there's enough foreign investors yet to take up all that slack. So, how are you feeling now, Elena? <laughs> Terrible. <laughs> sorry, I, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I was hoping that you had a magic solution. I think that it, there was something that you talked about in the book that that caught my eye, and I wanted to ask you if if there was any possibility that something like that would happen here. And that was, I think you said it was South Carolina that had come up with a creative and effective solution to the skyrocketing insurance rates 
And we in Florida have not succeeded in that. We had a tug of war with State Farm, as many people know, um, which we sort of lost. They're not leaving the state, but they're raising their rates and dropping many policyholders. Do you see any short-term solution to the insurance, the, the high insurance rates in Florida? Uh, no, uh, truthfully, Elaine, I haven't been following it that closely since I, I wrote my book and, and I had a chapter on on insurance. But the problem, uh, the problem, in Florida is is pretty thick, and and that's for one reason because Florida, uh, as one of its solutions, decided to create its own insurance. Right, Elena? I'm, I'm pretty pretty sure that's correct. Yes, so yes. Have, so you pretty much insure through the state of Florida, and. That, uh, by any account, for anything that I've read, that that hasn't worked, and um, the the insurance, uh, whatever uh, cabinet position that insurance might be in the state of Florida, sort of has been running negative, and the only thing that has uh, saved it is the fact that after that extraordinary run of hurricanes, you you've had a couple of quiet years. So you'll see how it all goes when you have the next big hurricane, but so far you've been lucky. So maybe when we talk about cycles, I think they say the hurricanes run in cycles, and maybe you went through the, the worst part of the hurricane cycle and you'll have a couple of quiet years ahead and, and everybody will have a chance to regroup, and uh, maybe the insur- that insurance cost will come down. The challenge seems to be that the insurance companies are actually not losing money. They've made more money than everybody thought, and yet they're so afraid, as you said in the book, that they're just trying to make sure that they have money in the kitty. Let's talk a little bit about other areas, for example, Arizona and I think Nevada also has had some of the issues that we've had in Florida. Do you see a faster recuperation in those areas than you do, for example, in Florida? Well, uh, let me take Arizona because I live here. Now, Arizona is in a position where Florida was about 20 years ago. We are in a a growth position and have been for uh, a couple of decades now. And when you're in a growth state, you boom and bust regularly. And that pretty much uh, happened with Florida, but always moving up. Uh, so Florida had its boom and bust, but it was always uh, ex- expanding even after the, after the bust. And that's where Arizona is now. So we're, we're, we're in a growth position and we're booming, bust, uh, we're booming and we're busting fairly regularly. So we went through just a, a big boom and we're in, a, in a, a tough bust. But since people are still moving to Arizona, we should come out of this bust in, in fairly good shape. So I'm optimistic for, for Arizona, only because we're, we're still on uh, probably a longer-term growth cycle than Florida is. I'm not sure about Las Vegas. Uh, Las Vegas had, had, a, had a great growth cycle, and um, but its main... Uh, driver of the economy is gaming and now and there was a time where gaming Las Vegas dominated gaming and it still does but gaming appears just about in every state in the union now so that siphons off some of the business secondly Las Vegas is not a, a, as big a um, region especially population wise as Arizona or Florida so 
smaller and, and when you're smaller when you have cycles they the boom and bust uh, are worse so uh, Las Vegas has its own issues uh, that it has to face I think it's still a pretty it'll be a pretty good retirement market going forward uh, but there's a lot of jobs that were lost um, the, the, there the a lot of construction jobs, a lot of gaming jobs that were lost, and I don't know if they're going to come back anytime soon. So um, a little, I, I think it'll take Las Vegas uh, a little bit longer than than Arizona to come back. And and about the other uh, place that was hard hit was Southern California. Uh, it's, it's an odd thing. Uh, Southern California is is, uh, is not unlike Florida in the sense that. Actually, they, they lose as many people as they gain. Uh, a lot of people come to South uh, uh, Southern California, and uh, for one reason they don't like it. Perhaps it's very expensive, and and then they uh, and then they move away. So, but uh, so South Southern California, uh, it's up in the air. I mean, it always comes back. Southern California has a pretty uh, good, well-rounded economy. Uh, some parts of California, such as the uh, Inland Empire, Riverside, San Bernardino, which, which is more of the blue-collar area, uh, a lot of industrial. They they simply has to they simply will have to wait for the economy to get stronger because a lot of their economy is based on uh, the industrial marketplace, and that's weak at the moment. So those are those are Southern California, Arizona, Las Vegas, Florida. Those were probably four of the hardest hit places. Any other? Anyone hit me with another one? Um, well, not necessarily a specific area, but you also mentioned an interesting phenomenon in the book that seems to relate to all of this. You talked about the change in living styles going from a suburban la- lifestyle back into the cities. Do you, do you think that that is, in fact, what's going to happen? Do you still feel that way? Um, and, and would you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, there, there's a lot of uh, uh, movements coalescing, uh, and they and they probably would have uh, uh, coalesced in a stronger way if we didn't have this recession. But uh, it, it, these are movements that will dominate uh, demographics and where people move going forward over the next decade, uh, and 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 they're sort of running tangential. And one of them is is uh, the green movement. Uh, another part, a part of that is the high cost of commutation, and, and thirdly, uh, a movement of people cl- back towards the center of cities, as opposed to further and further out. So the, all, those all those are three things are going on that are all related. Now uh, we've forgotten about about two years ago. I think we had that. Uh, uh, the extraordinary high uh, cost of gasoline. Uh, I think we had record highs in the cost of gasoline. And people got to think you know, for the first time ever just how much they were spending commuting to work every day. And they realized this was a huge part of their budget. Even though prices of, uh, of gas have retracted, we know we'll never see cheap ga- gas again. If anything, 
it will just get uh, from where we are now. It will probably just get more expensive. So uh, the the cost of commutation now plays a big part in where we live, and people uh, are realizing that if you live thirty miles away, twenty miles away, and you have to go back and forth, you're you're paying a lot of money there. And why not just move a little closer to uh, the city? You don't have to move in the city. Um, you can move a little closer in and save yourself some money. Now, at the same time, cities have said, uh, okay, uh, you know, let's, let's uh, redevelop closer in. Let's, uh, let's provide some incentives for condominiums to be built in, in the center of the city. Uh, there have been movement, movements of mass transit, such as light rail. I'm in Phoenix. We have our first light rail uh, from last year. And uh, light rail extends out into uh, some of the suburban locations. And people are saying, you know, if we build near some of these transportation nodes, then uh, you can actually get on the light rail, even though you're in the suburbs, and commute downtown and you're not in your car. So we have, uh, you know, we have light rail, we have uh, condos being built uh, in the city, uh, in some of the older suburbs that are closer into the cities that are attached by light rail, and and the, and the high cost of gasoline. And then uh, what happened uh, in this period of extraordinary growth, say from 2000 to 2006, that... Uh, there was such a move. Uh, there was such a uh, incentive to build anew that that le- builders were buying further and further out, more land, more land, more land, further out, and starting to develop new um, residential development. And, and a lot of these residential developments uh, are now bust. Uh, but people started to move into them. So you have busted residential developments far out on the exurbs. Uh, with homes, uh, and some people live in, and uh, my feeling is that these uh, these new developments, the furthest ones out, will never ever regain uh, uh, whatever price tag that they had on when they were originally sold because of these other factors that we that I just talked about. So, uh, and what's going to happen? People uh, people with good jobs. Doesn't have to be a high class, higher end people, but middle class people with good jobs, they will find uh, a way to move closer to the city, perhaps uh, into older suburbs, not necessarily into condos in the city. And the people with poor jobs, the people with less money, will end up buying those homes further out on the exurbs. So what we did, in fact, uh, during those boom times, was started to create, whether we knew it or not. Uh, sort of a far ex- exurban slums, uh, because these are this is where the cheap homes will be uh, going forward. So we have a lot of uh, uh, crazy things happening uh, demographically that will uh, uh, that that you know uh, the the whole metro areas of America will look different you know ten years from now than than they do now. Uh, so that's uh, that's about as crystal ballish as I get, I think, Elena. <laughs> that's pretty crystal ballish. 
Now, Steve, when you say these changes are going to take place, I, I heard something along the, the timeline of 10 years, and you talked about metropolitan areas. What about the other areas that are not big cities? So, of course, when you talk about metropolitan areas, we think of New York and Chicago and Los Angeles. Uh, but we have a lot of other cities that have maybe a million people, maybe less, a lot of areas that are growing, urban areas that are growing, but that are still not quite giant, if you will. Do you see this these trends taking place everywhere or specifically in the very large urban areas? No, no, actually, no, not, not necessarily in the larger urban areas. What we're finding, and I think I mentioned this in the book, that there was a, a theory that, you know, it used to be companies will build uh, and, and they expected everybody to follow. And so they might build somewhere out uh, outside of, uh, let's say, they built outside of Charlotte, uh, a big industrial plant, and uh, they knew workers would end up there. But uh, th- uh, there's been this theory now that companies uh, build where where uh, where they think the workers will be. So the the this next generation, not even way past Generation X, maybe even past Generation Y, uh, they those people, those graduates decide, hey, this is where we want to live. This is the cities where we want to live in, and industry is saying, hey, you know, that's where the future workers, the the college graduates, want to live. Let's build there. So these aren't necessarily in big cities, they, and, and they're in some of these up-and-coming cities, such as Austin, Texas. You know, people uh, in industry saying, let's be in Austin because that's where, you know, some of these sharp kids want to be. So they're not necessarily in the big cities, and um, we don't know what those cities are, but some cities that are attracting attention, besides Austin, uh, Raleigh, uh, Raleigh in the southeast, and um, I'm just trying to quickly think of some more. Uh, you know, there's a few cities in the Midwest that are attracting on a regional basis, even in, in South Dakota, such as the, uh, 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 I think it's Bismarck or Fargo area, I'm not sure. One of them's in South Dakota. Sorry for my lack of geographic knowledge there. So there are some cities where people are building because... Um, Oh, another place is Western Washington, around the Sp- uh, Washington State, around Spokane. So, so we see that happening. And the say, and the other thing, in it, and is that uh, another a number of the old industrial cities uh, that haven't been able to turn around will see a migration away from. And I hate to pick on Detroit, but uh, that seems to be the most egregious example. You know, Detroit had a population of 1.5 million in the 50s, and now it's about 750,000. And at some point, cities have to adjust that to the fact that they may never come back to the way they were at one time. And cities, some cities will have to downsize, just as other cities uh, in the future will be upsizing. So it's not just big cities. Uh, I think there's a lot of new cities out there. Not new cities, but like you said, cities in the 500,000 to 1 million category that uh, we'll see a lot of growth in the next uh, decade. Tell us a little bit about 
the banks and the loans and the credit bureaus because for a while there it seemed like people could just borrow any amount for any property and the banks were just too happy to lend to them and now the pendulum seems to have swung in the opposite direction it doesn't matter how good your credit is or how desirable the property is the banks don't seem to want to part with their money where is this going to land and what how is that going to work with the credit bureaus also well, the lenders are, are are just as cyclical as real estate as real estate uh, lenders in, in in their methodologies. They're just as cyclical as real estate investing, and they go through periods where they where they tighten up credit, and then they go through periods where they're on some extraordinary growth path, and they loosen up credit, and then it all seems to blow up on them, and then they go through another period of tightening up again. And that's where we are now. Uh, they went through a period where they were so loose in their standards that it all ca- came back to haunt them in a bad way. Uh, and uh, we're, in, we're in a period of, uh, of tight credit. And unfortunately, um, I don't see any point, even in 2010, where the, uh, the lenders are, are, will be loosening their credit anytime soon. I think they were they've been so beat up over the past from past few years that uh, um, uh, they're still a bit afraid at least when it comes to consumer I see them uh, easing up credit in a number of uh, industry wide paths uh, some financing to uh, asset managers or hedge funds and things like that but as far as the the consumer they're still afraid of the consumer. And uh, I think it'll take another year be- before we'll we'll so- start seeing anything that looks like normality in the credit in the in the credit crisis cycle. So, what should people do? Somebody who is in their home, or somebody who bought a home that maybe is slightly more than they can afford, or has a second home. I know we haven't talked about second homes yet, but are you recommending based on some of these? predictions or what you anticipate the market to do, that people sit still? Do you think people should start looking at moving closer into the cities already? What would you say in general that you would recommend people to do on the residential front? Uh, Unfortunately, what's what's going to happen in residential really has to, uh, is based on employment. If you have a job uh, and your job is secure and you're doing well, then you can make a decision on what and where you will do you will do in terms of where you want to live. But unemployment is very high, and uh, those people who have lost their job and and I don't know it's ten percent of the uh, some huge number we have unemployment now and. Um, uh, their ability, they don't have that, that, that sort of leisure to make a decision on what to do about their future. Uh, all they think, think about is getting a job uh, because if they get a job, they, then they don't have to lose their home. So those people are in a very bad way, and there's uh, millions of them out there. And um, there's uh, people 
as we speak, losing their home every day because they haven't found a job. So uh, it's really, it's really at this point, it's all about employment. If you have a job, you can make decisions. If you don't, uh, the decisions will be made for you. And for those people who are in a stable position, it sounds like you're saying stay put, wait things out. Um, well, uh, not necessarily. If you have a good job and um, you feel secure, uh, this is, of course, the, the one of the most extraordinary times in our history where we should be buying real estate because uh, the prices are... Uh, are so low in so many areas. So, yeah, yeah. If you can get the credit, if you have the money, if you have a stable job, uh, this is the time to buy. And you're, if you're that lucky, go ahead and do it. Let's talk a little bit more about that lucky, in terms of those people who have second homes. And I know that you distinguished uh, the. Uh, the, the concept between people who have second homes for their private use and people who have second homes as investment properties. Would you tell us a little bit about those markets? Because I know they're separate, but the line is a little blurry, right? Yeah, the thing about second homes, uh, and I always like second home markets. I always think this, uh, I always thought the second home markets were a fairly good uh, investment. Uh, like everything else, they got overbuilt, especially on the condominium side uh, over the last 10 years. So that's been a problem. But the thing about second home markets and, and the, this, the, the key reason, the core reason why I like, like second homes is that where people build second homes, that's either on the shore of some body of water somewhere, whether it's a lake or ocean, or in the mountains near a ski resort, uh, the land is limited. The, the old trope is, you know, God only made so much beachfront, and that is in a sense true. And that holds for, uh, oddly enough, for uh, uh, people who buy in mountains, because when you go skiing and you're up on top of a mountain and you look at this extraordinary expanse of forest around you, very small part of that is in private hands. Most of that forest, no matter where you are, whether you're in Colorado or Utah or Alaska or wherever to ski, is in federal hands and won't be developed. So there's only a limited amount of develop, development around ski resorts. So that's why I like, in the long term, second homes. And uh, But we have some weakness now because in a lot of areas, such as South Florida, uh, we've had extraordinary overbuilding. And the other thing, uh, what, what I really like to differentiate in second homes is uh, second home itself and vacation home properties. And uh, vacation home properties, and there have been a lot of concepts in vacation home properties, and it all originated with the timeshare. And in the timeshare, uh, uh, which is a concept I don't, I don't like, because in timeshare you don't really own real estate, you're really owning just a block of time, so it's not a real estate investment. But again, over the past 10 years, there were uh, an extraordinary amount of, uh, of concepts uh, that came over of timeshare and, uh, and resort area development. And that, you know, that included condo hotels and vacation clubs and all these things. And um, I, I don't like any of them. And I, I think some of them are an extraordinarily pernicious concept like condo hotels, which, which is a program to help develop 
to help the developer and not the investor. Uh, all told, going just to recoup here, I like second homes. I like the concept. A little overbuilt now, but I think they'll, I think those markets will return uh, and uh, they'll uh, they'll again become good investments only because uh, limited amount of good uh, second home market land and uh, stay away from uh, uh, all those other concepts. So hang on to the second home if you have it. If you are fortunate enough to have some investment money set aside and you can, I'm hearing you say, I think, that it's a good time to look at the markets closely for investment opportunities, even in second homes, and especially in coastal and ski areas. Is that right? That's right. You got, you got me good. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about commercial uh, real estate. Um, I just saw an article over this weekend, actually, that says the market is in serious trouble, that it's supposed to get worse before things get better. Would you tell us a little bit about that? Well, let me just kind of quickly run through this. Uh, Commercial, I think I said this earlier in our talk, that commercial uh, lagged the residential by about 12 months. And so we're in the throes of uh, the, the commercial real estate problems now. And, e- and, each, and each sector of the commercial uh, real estate industry has its own problems. Uh, um, I'll start off with office. Office, uh, because of the economy, uh, people shed office space. And there's a lot of uh, excess office space out there on the market especially in cities where there were fi- uh, that were uh, heavily invested in the financial industries. So you have New York, you have cities like New York, you have cities like Charlotte, you have cities like San Francisco, you have Orange County, California, uh, which was home to uh, the subprime mortgage industry. So in these cities, they shed an extraordinary amount of space, uh, and it'll be a tough time to get those filled um, uh, the value of office building, even in prime locations, has uh, uh, decreased by 30, 30, 40, sometimes 50 percent. Uh, the only good market is Washington, D.C., because our only growth industry is government at the moment. So uh, uh, the, the office market uh, is, is in a moment of an extraordinary weakness. Uh, even here in Phoenix, I uh, saw so we've passed the 20% mark in terms of vacancy in the office market. Industrial <clears throat> industrial uh, doesn't get as weak as uh, as office. Uh, once you pass the 10% mark in industrial vacancy, you're in trouble, and a lot of markets are there. But uh, once the economy picks up, and uh, we, we get that supply chain going again, then there will be, in, in areas that are on the supply chain, will we'll, uh, we'll recover fairly quickly in terms of industrial market. And I'm guessing that will be, uh, at best, 2012. Somewhere around 2012, we'll, the industrial market will, will, will start coming back fairly solidly. Um, um, the other market that's uh, extraordinary weak is is retail. Uh, it's it's just uh, it was just overbuilt. It, uh, retail followed housing. Wherever they built new housing development, they built new retail. Uh, those housing developments uh, collapsed. Many of them. Uh, the retail that was built uh, is sitting empty. 
Plus, we had a, uh, a recession. People stopped shopping, and uh, retailers stopped expanding. And in fact, they contracted. We had a lot of retailers go out of business. There's a lot of big box space sitting empty. Um, there's uh, I don't have too much good to say about retail. Maybe when people start getting employed again and employment starts coming down and they have money again to shop, uh, maybe some of this empty space will will uh, will fill, fill up. But uh, I, I see as a weakness in the retail sector for two or three years yet. And uh, uh, multifamily, multifamily uh, is getting uh, crushed at the moment. Uh, everybody thought when, when uh, people would lose would lose their houses, they they would move into apartments. And surprisingly, that just didn't happen because the the recession was so severe, the people couldn't afford apartments, so they moved in with each other or they moved back with family, and we're getting some extraordinary high vacancy rate in uh, national apartment statistics. Uh, the the thing about apartments is we uh, uh, we used to build historically 170,000 rental units a year. Uh, this was just to um, uh, pretty much, to, you know, for what was needed because of, uh, of the rental units that uh, sort of went out of the market. But we're down to at least uh, 100,000 rental units a year. So we're probably running at a deficit of the number of rental units we're, uh, that we will need in the future. So at some point, probably around 2012, 2013, uh, multifamily will become a uh, landlord market again. But we, we just have another year or two of weakness to get there. I think I covered most of the retail uh, commercial sectors. Anything I missed? No, I think that was pretty comprehensive. Steve, you talked about the multifamily and the residential at the tail end of that. And that made me wonder something. We as a country are going through some demographic changes in terms of the what have traditionally been called the minority or the emerging markets. And some of these folks have different cultural trends and and different backgrounds in terms of their lifestyle preferences. Do you see that affecting real estate in any way, uh, east or from the south or wherever the immigrant groups are that we're looking at that are upwardly mobile and that are driving the growth in the country as we know they are today, do you see any evidence that their culture and their spending habits, which are slightly different from the mainstream, are having or will have an impact in the real estate markets? Well, actually, I I see it in, in, in very extraordinary ways, to tell you the truth. And I'll just start uh, in Southern California. I was in Orange County. Orange County, as you may well know, is uh, south of Los Angeles. It's kind of an upscale county. And uh, they've had a large influx of Asians. So uh, they now have uh, uh, Asian-based retail there. Uh, So uh, uh, and I was in a, a, a shopping center that... Uh, where, where the where the um, the anchor was a Korean supermarket. I thought that was an extraordinary. And then I come home, and I'm here in uh, I'm, I live in Mesa, Arizona, and I saw the same thing happen, but with a sort of a, a Mexican 
uh, themed grocer. We had a, a new shopping center built, and the anchor was this uh, Mexican-themed grocery store. And I'm, I'm not saying something big. This is huge. It was a huge store. And my wife shops there, and uh, we also shop at the, the regular grocery stores like an Albertson or something like that. But this store has such amazing traffic that uh, it, it fills up the whole shopping center. So we're, we're now getting sort of, uh, uh, in the retail, we're getting some of these uh, ethnic-themed uh, retailers, uh, especially on the grocery side, that are, are, are new and are beginning to dominate uh, in local spaces. And the other thing about that, uh, there are some areas, and again, I'm in Mesa. Mesa in the 90s was the fastest growing city in the country. And we have about 500,000 people now. And we have a big Hispanic population. And the, the smart retailers, uh, smart uh, retail developers, have I noticed have geared some of these uh, strip centers and shopping centers uh, strictly, strictly to the Hispanic market. So, you, you know, if there's 10 uh, units in, in, a, in a retail center, they're all uh, targeted to the, uh, the Hispanic populace. So uh, the shop developer is noticing what you were saying here, Elena, and uh, adjusting to it and prospering because they, they're, they're making that adjustment. And I see, I, I see there's more of it happening in the future. You, do you think there are going to be similar trends in the residential real estate arena as well? Uh, it's harder in the residential because uh, you, you cannot uh, target one audience over another uh, in residential because that would be uh, discriminatory. However, if you have uh, own a, a, a big apartment or a big condo and you say, Okay, where are my next tenants coming from? And you say there's a large uh, uh, block of uh, wealthy or middle class Hispanics that live uh, within a hundred miles of my uh, my apartment or condo. Where, where are you going? Uh, who are you going to target? You're going to target those people because they have the money and they have the, the capability of moving into your place. Because that's where the growth is coming from. Because that's exactly where the growth is coming from. And it's not just South. I mean, I'm in Arizona and you're in Florida, but uh, the Hispanic population uh, growth in, in, uh, in cities uh, such as Chicago or uh, even in uh, states like the Carolinas uh, is, is fairly potent. Uh, we just don't he- read about it enough, but uh, the Hispanic population in those places is is extraordinary, and it has been. Uh, the population growth has been uh, going on for for at least a decade now. Yes, they're called the secondary Hispanic markets now. Uh, okay, well, you see, Elena, you know that better than me. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about something else that you addressed in the book in terms of where you saw some growth opportunities for investment. Um, and correct me if I'm using the wrong terminology, but I think that you said they were assisted living facilities, similar to hotels, but not exactly because they were for the retirees 
Did I get the name right? Oh, uh, I think I was referring to the seniors market and the. Uh, let me think of what I was saying there about that. Uh, there is a senior housing market, and the the senior housing market uh, is unusually diverse. And funny when when people discovered the senior housing market about twenty years ago, they started building these great retirement communities and expecting anybody over sixty to move in, and that just didn't happen. And uh, senior housing is now uh, targeted to uh, even an older segment, you know, late seventies, eighties. Because uh, even if you retire at 60, you're still pretty active. You don't necessarily want to go to some sort of seniors housing. But the baby boomers, and I'm a baby boomer, we're getting old. And uh, we're, uh, sometime in the next 10 years, we'll, we'll, we'll start to hit those slowdown ages. And some of us uh, won't be able to live independently. And there's such a large number of us. Even if it's just a small percentage, uh, the senior housing is really the, the will be the growth market. So you know, I, I see not not in five years, but in ten years, senior house seniors housing will be uh, even a more important part of the the uh, real estate sector than it is now. And when you say senior housing, you mean housing where there is staff in the way that there is staffing in a hotel, but staff that are geared to the needs of the retirees and the seniors. Is that yeah, right? exa- exactly. And there's a, and again, that's a wide, uh, a wide variety because you have nursing homes where people need a lot of help, or you have independent living where they have. Uh, uh, sort of communal living like an apartment but with uh, communal meals but people are living independently they don't need uh, medical help they're just living in, in uh, um, a facility like an apartment uh, where they don't have to co- cook for themselves other than maybe breakfast so they go down for lunch and go down for dinner and uh, sit with other people and there's organized uh, sports and recreation and things like that, but they don't need extraordinary medical help. And then there is, uh, uh, as you go up the cycle to nursing homes, then it gets increasingly in the amount of medical uh, help that you contract for in these places. So, yeah, those facilities, uh, they will be needed uh, in the future. So for folks who are thinking about investment opportunities in the long term, five to ten years, this is something to keep their eyes on exactly exactly and and then and and more more it'll be everywhere in every city uh even if you live in in uh, uh upstate new york some people don't like to retire away from family and friends so they're going to retire there but most of it will be in the warmer climes florida the carolinas texas arizona southern california nevada places like that Steve, so you were saying that in the senior living housing area, there's going to be an acute need, especially in the sunny states, let's call them, in the states that traditionally have been favored by retirees, which coincidentally are some of the states that are also facing the harshest part of the crisis because of overbuilding, etc. Do you think that some of that senior living can be filled from the excess housing that is already in place in those states? 
The uh, uh, what's going to drive the senior housing market is the uh, the aging of the baby boomers. The first baby boomers uh, uh, are uh, are well into their sixties, and as we get older, uh, we will get. If we live long enough, we will get more infirm. And uh, so there will be a need, and I'm a baby boomer, so I'm talking about myself as well. So there will be a need for uh, more senior housing. Now, this one, uh, we're at the, the edge of the baby boomer getting old uh, movement here. So uh, actually, we have probably a good five or ten years down the road before the, this real acute need for senior housing starts to kick in. And the senior housing will, will appear everywhere. Even if you uh, live in upstate New York or in Massachusetts or uh, Boulder, Colorado or wherever, uh, you don't want to retire away from friends and family, uh, so there will be some need for senior housing. However, most seniors will probably retire to warmer climes, and that, uh, that includes Florida, Arizona, Texas, Nevada, uh, Southern California, places like that, Carolinas. So we'll see uh, the bigger movement uh, and need for seniors housing in those states. Um, unfortunately, a lot of uh, existing uh, product that's been overbuilt is not is not wouldn't make good use for seniors housing as is unless it was modified. Because even at the at the lowest level, uh, uh, independent living. Uh, where you, you're essentially living in your own apartment, but there's uh, communal dining and maybe a commu- uh, and just a small stove, small stove or burner in the apartment, so say you can make yourself breakfast. So it's not a full apartment, but uh, you need these other things, uh, and that's at uh, that's at the lowest level of seniors housing. And then as you uh, uh, there's uh, as you get more infirm, you uh, enter uh, various stages of more uh, serious seniors housing until you get uh, to something like nursing homes where you need medical assistance all the time. So not sure it will help uh, excess real estate in those states. And for those folks who are interested in looking at that as a possible place to invest their money, is that as simple as other areas of real estate, as other sectors, or does the staffing make it more complex? It, it, it's, it's like the hotel business. It makes it uh, exceedingly more complex. And that's why over the, uh, the past 20 years, the hotel business has divided into hotel management, if you're a Marriott or a Hyatt or something like that, and the ownership of real estate, which which is in the hands of investors or real estate investment trusts, so they've actually separated that business out in the hotel industry, and they'll probably have to do that uh, at some point in the future in terms of senior housing, uh, where the owner uh, where the ownership of the real estate will be different from the management of those buildings because uh, it makes it all too complex. Are there any new trends or any changes in the market that you've noticed since you completed the book? I know it hasn't been that long, but of course the markets have been changing so fast and the crisis has hit so many people so hard. Is there anything new or that is rapidly changing that you think is noteworthy? No, the uh, the only thing that uh, I, I and I, I mentioned this, and, and but it's a very very important point. Uh, 
we're at the, we're at the point in, it, where where markets have stabilized, but for us to see any improvement here in the United States, we we have to get a handle on employment. Uh, uh, once people start working again, uh, then they will obviously have money in their pocket. They they could uh, stabilize their housing situation. They can go shopping. They'll need more stores. Uh, once businesses start expanding again, they'll need more office space. So uh, and, uh, we, I know they're saying the economy is picking up, but unless we see it at the people level, uh, then the the um, the prospects for a quicker uh, emergence out of this real estate recession won't happen. If you were able to have your say to share your thoughts and suggestions with decision makers, business owners, government officials, uh, senior administration officials, etc. What would be your number one recommendation to help turn things around? What would you say? Well, obviously, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty focused on the employment situation. And uh, I think uh, if the government can get a handle on that and in some way um, stabilize uh, this 10% of the population that is unemployed, I think all good things, including the improvement of the real estate markets, will, will, will come about before, from that. So that's sort of like the most uh, uh, intense, uh, finite little place if there was some place we had to start, uh, that's where it is. The government, I think, did a good job in, in doing what they can to uh, keeping the economy from collapsing in total. I think they've done a good job in sort of bringing back a an environment of stabilization to real estate, especially residential real estate. Uh, but for us to churn it around to actually get back on some sort of growth or uh, uh, appreciation growth path, uh, we need to get the economy going and getting people employed again. And for homeowners and business owners who are anxious about their own situation, what would you say? Would you tell them to sit still? Would you tell them to try to make a change in their lives? What would be your advice? Okay, there. So there. Uh, if if you're in a good situation, if you're employed, and if you're uh, you're uh, feel you'll be employed a long time, and your position is stabilized, uh, this is an extraordinary time to buy real estate, whether it's re- residential real estate, investment real estate, of some time, or uh, or commercial real estate. Uh, the, the the prices have been beaten up so extraordinarily that uh, if you could find the capital uh, this is the time to take your chance um, take your chance and go out and, and and make that real estate investment we'll never find prices this low again I don't think in my lifetime I'll find prices this low again comparatively so yeah if you got it do it thank you Steve for joining us today from Mesa Arizona Oh, thank you. I had I had, uh, had a great time. Thank uh, thank you, Elena, for asking me to to uh, partake. And to our audience, thank you for listening to Steve Bergsman, author of After the Fall, Opportunities and Strategies for Real Estate Investing in the Coming Decade, who discussed the recovery of the real estate market in the United States. 
Please share your suggestions, questions, and ideas by leaving a comment on the HispanicNPR.com website. If you or someone you know would like to be on the show, you can email me directly at editor at HispanicNPR.com. That's editor at HispanicNPR.com. 